This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Palo Alto, written and directed by Gia Coppola and starring Emma Roberts and James Franco, is a film about adolescent lust, boredom, and self-destruction centered on a shy girl on the cusp of an illicit relationship with her soccer coach. The comedy About Alex stars Aubrey Plaza, Max Greenfield, and Maggie Grace, as college friends reuniting and discovering a secret that will change their lives. Both movies are available on demand now. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I am Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on this episode of SVU, our listener's choice review of the British miniseries Southcliffe. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme and inspired by Southcliffe. We had considered recommending other movies with characters named Cliff. You know, there's Cliff from Quigley Down Under, there's Cliff mm. from Dead Man on Campus, there's Cliff Fantone from Bring It On, of course, and who could forget Cliff Riker from The Rainmaker. Then, you know, we were I had done about four or five hours of research on this. and All, then, and all of these movies are solid gold. They're fantastic movies, and I was really excited to talk about Quigley Down Under, one of my favorites of all time. And then, Allison, you pointed out that South Cliff is, is the name of the town in South Cliff. It's not actually about a guy named Cliff who heads south. That was my mistake. I need to. The problem is, I need to start watching the movies or the TV shows before I suggest I, these you ideas. Know, I think it's not a bad idea to start doing that. But anyway, instead of uh, all those Cliff films, we're going to talk about towns, small towns. South Cliff is the name of the town. It's a very small town in England, and we thought we would do that as a topic: movies that are set in small towns. But first up is opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. Allison, it's your turn to go through these. What's the first pick this week? Well, all three of my picks are available now uh, on demand, so if any of these strike your fancy, you can um, watch them right now. First up is Coherence, which is directed by, written and directed by James Ward Bierkit. I hope I said that last name right, sir, but it is a sci-fi dinner party movie, which is a really underexplored subgenre. Starring an ensemble cast that includes Nicholas Brendan from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Lorene Scafaria, who is an actress who also directed Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Uh, it's, it's obviously a lean and low budget movie, but one that uses its, the restrictions of its setup very well. It's basically 
the, the basic idea is that this group of friends, some of whom haven't seen each other for a long time, gather for a dinner party out in the suburbs and this comet passes by over. It happens to be passing very close to Earth and starts doing strange things that they only figure out as they're going along. And I won't go too deeply into the scenario. But I will. I they turn into ducks. They, yeah, you ruined it for everyone. They now. all turn Don't into ducks. Don't even bother to watch it now. Spoiler alert, they're all ducks. But I, I think one of the things that this film does well is it marries the kind of its abstract con- concept very well with the personal dramas of the characters and the fact that they're all kind of slightly disappointed, uh, you know, approaching middle-aged people who have kind of had their their lives set back by things like indecision or addiction, you know, drinking problems and like... Molting. Uh, yes. Um, going, to, <laughs> going south for the winter <laughs> just breaks the year up just terribly. It's so inconvenient. I'm sorry. Um, but... Uh, you know, so it, it actually manages to combine them very well with you know, very limited resources and without really going for any special effects that mm. I can think of. Hey. 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 Amir's hey. bringing Laurie to dinner. Amir's a total jackass. <laughs> Everyone else still not have service. I got zero. No. On the news, you know, they're talking about the comet. Yeah, yeah. Miller's comet. After it passed, people get lost. They would end up in the wrong home. What? And they keep telling people that this can happen. The chicken tastes like right. tuna. It must be comment. Miller's comet. <laughs> whole neighborhood is out of power, uh, except for a house about two blocks up. <laughs> Mike, is that door locked? I'll, che- I'll check it. Stay away from the door. door. I can't stay this. I'm going to go see what's going on. I'm sorry, but I'm going. See that? Oh, Jesus. my God. This is bad. This is really Wait, bad. Wait, what's the box? That was at the other house. Oh, my, oh my God. Baby, what did you see? Here, what Here? did you see? So it puts us together well, and I think goes in some very unexpected directions. And uh, it was for... For that kind of minimalist sci-fi film, I feel like it, it, it did very well at what it, what it tried to do. So that is Coherence, and it is available on demand now, as is Locke, uh, which is written and directed by Stephen Knight, who wrote Eastern Promises, among other things. He also has a Briti- uh, new series, not that new, no, I think it's on its second season, uh, in the UK called Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders. I know, it's like English, but not English. It's uh, it's a Is like, that uh, slang for something. It's or? um a I think twenties or, or like it's a period gangster film starring Killian Murphy. Okay, and that was the name of this gang. I guess put razor blades in their caps oh. and something or other. I don't know. Please feel free to write in and correct me, uh, person who has actually seen this from the UK, but uh, hasn't hasn't gotten acquired for US TV yet. The Weinstein Company has picked it up. But anyway, it's one that I've been looking out for. Locke uh, stars Tom Hardy. And basically, that's it. It has other people's voices, uh, including Olivia Coleman, Ruth Wilson, Ben Daniels. But it's entirely comprised of a car ride from Birmingham towards London being made by this character named Locke, who is a Welsh uh, construction foreman who is driving to London to be there for the birth of a child he has conceived uh, with a woman from a one-night stand. He is married, he has kids, he has this very happy life, uh, but has basically, this this one night has ended up causing, you know, this, this kind of rather major thing. And he has decided he is going to be there for this woman, no matter what the consequences are for him. So it's almost like a play, except that it's filmed in a car, it's filmed and it's in a car. And it does some really great things in terms of keeping this scenario fluid, 
and also just turning things over to Tom Hardy, who is an actor we both admire and uh, I think does a lot, given that this is entirely resting on how riveting someone can be right. while driving right. and talking. Yes. Talking on the phone. So you've seen this one. I have. I've seen all of these. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he he's very impressive. And also for a character who is not like, is like a very solid guy. He's supposed to be just someone who, you know, is responsible and hardworking and not necessarily prone to acting erratic and pyrotechnics. So uh, I, I, I think given the, the kind of novelty, it pulls it off very well as well. And how does he act through the Bane mask the whole time? Is it good? Uh, you know, he's learned a lot since that first time. When I get through this traffic jam, then you'll have my permission but with, to die. with a Welsh accent this time. Oh, I can't do that. I'm yeah. not going to try. I couldn't See, do Hannibal Lecter last why, episode. I know, but that's this is why he's, he's the, the, the superstar. That's yes. why he's the superstar. It's, yeah. like, it's the most convincing Welsh accent through, through a Bane a mask. mask. Yeah. Yeah. While talking about all of his <laughs> evil plans, and also and also you know convincing his wife of of his of his fortitude, it's I, very impressive work. I, I think I missed I missed this one, but I've heard really good things about it. It's definitely one of the movies from the first half of the year. I'm really looking forward to checking out. So I'm going to make sure I I make some time for that one in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, my last recommendation is I, I don't know if I want to call it a recommendation, but I feel like this movie is too is. Too, <laughs> too special to to leave unmentioned okay it is frankie and alice this is a film directed by jeffrey Sachs, starring halle berry it actually was made and it came out briefly in 2010 it got like an oscar qualification release and then went unreleased until this year when someone finally picked it up and released it uh which speaks to its quality i think it's never a good sign when that happens uh or very rarely a good sign when that happens uh this is basically the most I think, dedicated Oscar grab I have ever seen. <laughs> Let me tell you about the character please. that Halle Berry plays in this please, movie. Please, please. She plays she, is she a stripper? She plays Frankie, yes. Okay. 70s, 1970s so stripper. So she's got, a, she's got the got hair. crazy hair yes. and bell bottom. Yes. Okay. Um, who has multiple personality oh disorder. God. No. One of her personalities is a seven-year-old child what? with genius-level IQ. No. Wait for it. No. The other is a racist white Southern woman. Get get the hell out of my house it's right real. now. It's real. It is a real movie. You've watched this? I have totally watched this movie. I don't believe you. It is amazing. Now, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page here now, and it says that they have <laughs> six screenwriters. <laughs> yes. So it's almost like the movie itself had multiple personalities. Yes. It is unbelievable. I can't believe it didn't. Now, they qualified for, you said it was it was released quickly in 2003 for qualifying. How many Oscars did nominations did it get, just out of curiosity? Yeah, it got zero. It got oh. negative. Oh, negative okay, Oscar nominations. Okay. Uh, you know, and I think that Barry gives herself fully over to this role. It's just so ridiculous. Okay. In in so many ways, it. Uh, yeah, it's something to be. It's something to so, end Do now. I need to watch this? I think you might want to watch it. Is it funny? It is. Is it a train wreck? It is a train wreck, and it is. I mean, it is mostly that it is a movie of like her, and I think Stellan Skarsgård is the. Uh, psychiatrist who treats Stellan Skarsgård yeah, yeah Dr. and it's Oz. a lot of them like dueling you know and wait, so wait when it's Frankie and Alice that's both of those are Halle Berry yes oh my god yes <laughs> this kind of sounds amazing it is kind of amazing yeah and, I'm well, gonna have to check this out well you can find it now on demand Small town girl 
theme for cue shots on this episode movies that are set in a small town and I felt like as I was looking at the list of movies that, that qualified the movies that are set in small towns and, and thinking over what they're about there's a lot there's sort of like two different strains right there's like the small town life is idyllic it actually is the stereotype it is how we conceive of it when we close our eyes you know the picket fences and the uh, what else? The sprinklers, the beautiful green lawns, the children playing outside, innocence, sweetness and light, all that stuff. Or the other variety is all those things are there, but they they are the surface that hides the seedy underbelly. You know, the classic scene from like Blue Velvet where they zoom in on, on right. like what on is it? The, the worms bu- and yeah, the bugs the underneath. And the bugs. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, yeah, oh, it looks beautiful, but get a little closer no. and you'll see all this darkness. I would also say that there is another category. There's a third category, yes, okay. In which it's like small town life is like stifling and uh, close-minded, okay. you know? I feel like there is a certain type of Sundance movie, like let's oh. say, that ha- it's like the storyline is so-and-so finally leaves the small town, his right. or her small town, right. you know? Like finally gets out of this stupid small town. Yeah, and there's probably a subsection that kind of applies with that kind of applies with some of the other ones I was saying where it's like the quirky characters of a small town you know where it's all about the weirdos and sometimes there's like the one normal person who is trying to escape or sometimes it's like the person who comes to town and is looking for a missing person and that's where you find the sort of the mystery angle the darkness angle but yeah that's another one where everyone in town is really wacky and crazy and silly and uh, that, that sort of overlaps I think with some of those other subcategories yeah i you know i feel like a lot of a lot of the country lives in small towns and a lot of people outside the country live i grew in small up towns. in a small town yes but when it becomes enough of a part of a movie that you notice it mm-hmm. that like the point of the movie is that it's right. in a small town then you do tend to fall into these categories like very there's like a message about small town living that's being conveyed that tends to be. Yes. Yeah. There's very few movies that are set in small towns where that's a big thing where it's neutral. You know, it's either small town living is beautiful and wondrous and we miss it and we look back on it fondly. This is America or something. Yes. In America. This is the way people used to live. Right. Or it's people are naive. They're stupid. It's all a big (laughs) lie. Small towns are horrible and they're disturbing and they destroy people and they and you know and so it's it's sort of interesting i, I mean it's definitely i've definitely seen lots of movies in in both both sides just for because we we're talking about a mini series that involves uh violence and murder and death and all that sort of and that is very much about like the idea of a absolutely. community in a small town absolutely you know? i decided that even though there's so many different movies i could have chose i picked two movies that both involve like murderers or killers or i decided to like make it even more specific uh, just nice. to kind of limit it and to make it a little more juicy for myself because there, there's certainly a lot of great movies that are about small towns that have nothing to do with murder. Right. And you know. see, I, after uh, having come off of this, you needed dark, a break. I was like, I'm going to do too light small town stories. I, I don't blame you. Do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. What's your first pick? Well, my first pick is a film that I actually hadn't seen until now. I've heard so many great things about it. And I think that we got a, re- a recent listener recommendation for this film as well. So this seemed like such a good time to finally watch it. It is show me love, uh, which is currently streaming on Netflix. The, uh, 
1998 directorial debut of Lucas Moodyson, who is, uh, you know, these days a pretty well-known director. Um, he recently had a film called uh, We Are the Best, which has been a big critic's favorite and I think pairs really well with this one. But uh, this is a, a film that's set in a small town called Amal, which is... There's nothing particularly bad about it, except that the, for the teenagers that live there, you know, it's excruciating in the way that life often is as a teenager anyway, because you feel bored and stifled and like you're waiting to start your real life. Uh, but this in particular is where the two main characters uh, feel kind of caught. The first one is Agnes, who is solitary and unpopular and uh, she moved to the town a year and a half ago. Nobody likes her. Her mother forces her to have her 16th birthday party and no one really comes for a long time. It's agonizing to watch. Uh, and then the other character is Elin, who is a, he was like the prettiest girl in town and uh, is friends with all the mean girls and who is uh, still incredibly bored and uh, not sure why anyone would stay in the town and also not sure, like they never have anything to do. And I think one of the things that Lucas Moodyson does really well in this and that he also does well in We Are the Best, which is about a, a three like 12 year olds who start a punk band, is that there's nothing terrible about this town. Like they're not, these girls have completely stable like home lives with parents who love them. And, who, uh, you know, they're not, there's nothing that they're really kind of like pushing off against except just feeling restless with youth. Um, and Agnes has a crush on Elin and the movie is about how they basically very awkwardly and in a very like naturalistic teenager way fall in love and it's really cute it has a great use of um, I want to know what love is in the both like hilarious and totally sincere way and uh, I, I think that this uses it captures the sense of how you can feel caught in a small town where everyone knows you. And in particular for uh, Elin, that she has already basically gone through every boy in town or like at least considered them all and like just sees this life, this possible f future life for herself in which as she, she kind of tells Agnes, like I get married, have kids, my husband leaves me for a younger woman. And then I'm just here with like children that I, I don't feel like taking care of, but like, and this is like her worst nightmare. Det kan du bli också. Du kan skriva böcker om olika sånt där sånt där psykiskt och och sådär och massmördare. Men här skulle jag nog bli modell. Tror jag kan bli det. Ja, det tror jag. För jag tror hon det är roligare att vara psykolog. Jag är tillräckligt snygg. Ja, det är You know, life there is not really so bad and maybe someday they'll come around to that fact, but uh, at that age, all they can feel is hemmed in. Um, and there's another particularly good moment where they, they kind of jokingly say they're going to run off to Stockholm and then start trying to, uh, to hitchhike. And when someone finally does stop for them, they get in and his car doesn't work. <laughs> like they really can't escape no matter, even like in this impulse, destructive impulse to try and run away to Stockholm, to the big city, uh, it doesn't work. So uh, it, it's... Um, it's a film that I think captures how life can seem as much as you know, you know theoretically that better things are coming, right? That like freedom is coming down the road and that also you'll be able to get away from like your high school cliques and from all of these other things uh, down the road. You can't get out away from feeling like that'll never come. 
you're 16 and like all that seems in front of you is life as it is and and that i think is is kind of can be perfectly epitomized in a small town um so that is show me love and is currently streaming on netflix and it's really wonderful i do really recommend it okay my first pick is also streaming on netflix right now it's from 2011 and it is a film by richard linklater entitled bernie and bernie the title character that's bernie tita the assistant funeral director in the small East Texas town of Carthage, who becomes the companion and then the personal assistant and then almost the slave of this wealthy widower named Marge Nugent. And I'm debating how much to reveal. I mean, I think most people know what the film is about and what happens, but for those who don't know, I I'm gonna think I'm going to not say what happens, not try to spoil anything, but let's just say... For our purposes here, things don't end well between Bernie and Marge, and the town is sort of forced to choose sides. And the interesting thing in this case is that the morality of this small town essentially sides with the attacker rather than the victim because they like the attacker better, and the victim is kind of a jerk, essentially. Uh, I saw this movie when it came out in 2011. I thought it was okay. And I rewatched it again last night, and I found I liked it more. I thought the humor was sharper. And I think if you're watching it, as I was, looking at it as a depiction of small-town America, I think there's some really rich aspects to it there uh, because the film, it's not quite a mockumentary or mock documentary, but it has uh, some of those elements in it. You know, Jack Black plays Bernie, Shirley MacLaine plays Marge, and their relationship plays out basically as it would in a normal fiction film. They're not interviewed. They don't talk to the camera. They don't address the camera. But there are these other scenes that are interspersed, uh, documentary-style interviews, basically, with the people from Carthage. And some of them are actors, but some of them are locals. And actually, sitting here right now, Allison, I can't even tell you which are which. I mean, some in some cases, I can. But in some cases, I'm not actually sure. If I mean, you recognize Matthew McConaughey. Yes, Matthew McConaughey <laughs> is in there. He plays the uh, the local prosecutor. Him I recognize. Yes, thank you. Mm. But there are other people who are, you know, they're just characters, and it's hard to tell. And sometimes they pop up in the backgrounds of scenes, and I go, does that necessarily mean that, oh, that means they're an actor? Or is it just that they were shooting in this town, and so they, to add that realism, that quality of authenticity, did they bring the people in to play extras in some of these scenes? And I honestly, I still don't know, and I kind of like not knowing. Uh, but the thing that the interviews give you is that small-town perspective on the events and the sort of cockeyed morality that an insular community can create. You know, there's this idea, there's a scene early where one of the people who lives in the town, either it's an actor or a real person, is describing how Texas is kind of like five different states and he says that Carthage is sort of off in its own area behind like a wall of pine trees or something. So it's, it's, he's establishing that it is like kind of its own, not just its own state, but almost its own country or universe. It's isolated and it's, and it's insular. And the people there, they have this, their own kind of code where this horrible act that happens is reconceived as beneficial to the community and it's almost a bigger sin in this world to be rude than it is to be a killer, basically. And the town kind of closes ranks to protect itself, to protect the person that it likes. And there are some very pointed uh, lines of dialogue throughout the film about 
living in a small town and what it's like and what it's like here in in Carthage. And one of the most interesting ones, I think, is that one of the interview uh, interview subjects says is in a small town, people will always suspect the worst of someone, but they'll also suspect the best, which gives you a sense of how it can be gossipy and people can kind of snipe at each other and destroy each other, but also how if you're nice to people, how they'll turn the other cheek, how they'll look the other way. And it also gives you the sense of just how complex this world is. You know, I I think maybe in our introduction, maybe we were a little, we made it seem a little too simplistic that either a, a small town can be perfect or its perfection is, is masking something very dark. And, and Bernie, I think is interesting in the way in, in which it suggests that a small town can be kind of sweet and also kind of sinister and they can both kind of exist simultaneously. I saw him at a restaurant one time, and they was having lunch together, and he reached over and kissed her on the cheek. But it wasn't a kiss like you give your mom or your grandma. It was more of a romantic sexual kiss to me, you know. He had that groaning sound in the back of his voice like, mmm, you know, it was kind of strange, and it just didn't look right to me. The word was that within a week after the funeral, Mrs. Nugent had given Bernie Mr. Nugent's $12,000 Rolex watch. Hell, for that kind of money, I bet he did kiss her. In a small town, people will always suspect the worst of someone, but they'll also suspect the best. So we just thought they were companions. I haven't really talked about the actors, but all three of the the stars, Jack Black, Shirley MacLaine, and Matthew McConaughey, are all really, really great in the movie. Uh, I've tried to avoid the plot, so I'm not going to talk too much more about that. But uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, um, I, I'd say if you're in, you're heavy into Linklater all of a sudden because of Boyhood, if you're thinking more about his work now, take a look at it. It's a little film, but I think it's an interesting one. It's Bernie. It's streaming now on Netflix. Yeah, that's one that I want to take another look at. I saw it, I think, at the World Premiere at South by uh, whenever that was, like two or three years ago. Would have been 2011. Yeah. And... I remember being a little lukewarm on it, and I think part of it I was, was too when, it, yeah. when I first saw it. It didn't really. But I, I mean, so many people have said, you know, have kind of stood up for it and kind and and really been big fans of it. I, I feel like maybe I should take another look as well. I don't think it'll ever be, you know, in the pantheon of Linklater movies. It's certainly not up to the level of the before movies, or you know, or or Boyhood, or even something like you know, Dazed and Confused, but I, it's, it's a good movie, you know, just because it's not a masterpiece doesn't mean there isn't a lot of really interesting stuff in it that's worth checking out. Okay, my next pick is Waiting for Guffman, which is ab- available for rent on Amazon and YouTube and all of the usual suspects. The 1997 mockumentary, though he hates, Christopher Guest hates that word, um, and he wrote and directed and stars in it alongside Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Le- Levy, uh, Fred Willard, Bob Balaban, Parker Posey. Uh, and as with his other films, this is improvised, heavily improvised, uh, and is a comedy at, uh, set in this very insular world. And I, I think that one of the things that this film does so well and that Christopher Guest does so well is that he allows people in these like very insular worlds to come across as ridiculous, but never undercuts their devotion to what they're doing. And in this case, uh, this is a film about community theater, basically. It's about the fictional town of Blaine, Missouri, 
which is reaching its 150th anniversary and it, as part the of sesquicentennial. the sesquicentennial and as part of their celebration uh, Corky St. Clair played by Christopher Guest who has recently moved to town from New York from New York City and his broad off 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 Broadway career um, has helped put together an original musical about the town's history called Red White and Blaine and it it would be so easy for this film to be mean because community theater a small town putting its history up on stage even though not all of that history is all that eventful uh, and in the case of Blaine that history includes the boom of the stool industry and it's founding by a guy who thought they were actually at the Pacific Ocean but were in Missouri uh, but it doesn't as much as these characters have incredibly overblown ambitions including uh, uh this possibility that a broadway pol- producer will named mort guffman will be coming to see the play and will will port them off to broadway where the world will enjoy the musical history of blaine missouri their dedication to the play is very real and i think that there's something about that creative myopia that refusal to kind of see anything outside of their own successes and their own what they've been working towards that goes way beyond community theater that that people are capable of doing that in all walks of life and that and making fun of that I think is something that the the movie does so well because uh, all of these people take themselves very very seriously most of, chief among them Corky St. Clair but also he's worshipped by all of his cast members except for the poor musical director played by Bob Balaban who re-watching this movie I appreciated more and more because he's the only one who believes in kind of hard work and has been there the whole time and just gets trampled multiple times by Corky St. Clair floating like a vapor on the soft Summer air, air. Very, very nice. Very, that was very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. You know, he knows he can actually He's sing. Good. Uh, but this movie is just has amazing tiny details uh, that I think. It holds up to many, many rewatchings, and I have seen it many, many times. But it also, you know, brings Blaine to life in this very memorable way. It's uh, a town filled with its own aristocracy. You know, there's the descendants of the original founder. It has its own, you know, stars, its own uh, dramas, and they all come to life so well in this production. And it's also really funny when they actually get around during the play. It's hilarious. Um, I, you know, this is in the stretch where I think Christopher Guest was doing some particularly great work, uh, and I, I just feel like it's—he's done a great job of making fun of people who don't see things clearly, without totally skewering them. Because you care about all these people at the ends, and and you care about what happens to Red, White, and Blaine. Uh, so that is Waiting for Guffman, and it is available for rent on Amazon, YouTube, and other sites. Okay, that's a great pick. My last pick, a little bit darker, a little more sinister, a little bit older from 1943. It's Shadow of a Doubt, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. 
You can never heard the, of him. Never heard of him. He's a little known director from England. You can rent the film on Amazon or iTunes. And the small town here is a place called Santa Rosa, California. It's the epitome of the idyllic, you know, 40s and 50s suburb. It's like Leave It to Beaver met Pleasantville. It is just beautiful, wondrous, magical, perfect. It's, the film was co-written by Thornton Wilder, the playwright, behind one of the all-time classics about small-time uh, American life, Our Town. And he brings kind of a similar level of care and detail to Santa Clara. That's where teenage Charlie Newton, played by Teresa Wright, lives uh, with her family, but wishing for excitement. She's craving some taste of excitement, the outside world, and it comes to see her in the form of her uncle Charlie, played by Joseph Cotton, who arrives in Santa Rosa for a visit, uh, but is secretly also there to hide from the police because he is suspected of being a serial killer known as the Merry Widow Murderer. Uh, so unlike Bernie or Southcliff or uh, some of the other movies that we've mentioned so far or are going to talk about TV shows anyway that we're going to talk about, you know, Santa Rosa is kind of like the idyllic small town. Like the, it is sort of beautiful and wonderful and it really seems pretty perfect until Uncle Charlie arrives and so the film kind of has this element of be careful what you wish for, right? Because young Charlie kind of dislikes being there, wants to do something exciting with her life. And yet when this evil quasi-vampiric presence arrives in town, she realizes how dangerous, uh, how big, uh, how dangerous that big, exciting world can be. And the people in, in Santa Rosa are so innocent and naive and so in insulated from that outside world that they're they're basically unprepared for someone on the level of Uncle Charlie that, you know, someone so manipulative and so cold. They're kind of outmatched by him, most of them. Do you know the world is a foul sty? Do you know if you ripped the fronts off houses, you'd find swine? I don't want you to touch my mother. So go away, I'm warning you. Go away or I'll kill you myself. Uh, Hitchcock often picked Shadow of a Doubt as his favorite of all of his movies, you know, over Psycho and Vertigo and Rear Window, so many other ones. Uh, often when he was asked of his favorites, Shadow of a Doubt was either the favorite or one of the two or three that he mentioned. And I, I suspect it's because it, 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 it really brings together a lot of his favorite themes in one place. You know, there's evil doubles or doppelgangers in the form of these two different Charlies, Uncle Charlie and Young Charlie. And there are buried secrets and there are innocent men and women who are under attack from evil forces. And it's just, and it's also a really great suspense story because even from the very beginning, whether, you know, we're, it's not entirely clear if Uncle Charlie is the Merry Widow murderer, but clearly he's hiding something. There is some secret. There is some darkness there. And all the signs, the ominous signs that Hitchcock layers into the movie. There's clearly something going on, and we're just waiting to see what will happen. Will young Charlie find out? Will Uncle Charlie kill his his niece? What will happen? And the whole time it's just so disturbing and suspenseful and, and wonderful. So if you haven't seen this one, if you haven't seen this Hitchcock, uh, it's definitely one that, I don't know if I would call it my favorite Hitchcock like Hitchcock did, but it's certainly... A very, very good film. So one to one to watch. That's Shadow of a Doubt, and you can rent it now on Amazon or iTunes. Commander. Yeah, they use it as a joke. They think it's funny. 
But they don't know, do they? Yeah, Afghanistan, you said. Special ops. No way. The regiment? Yeah, I was a not fair back then. I bet you got some stories. Yeah. Well, I was with Randy McNabb and his boys out in the golf. Golf war? I mean, you're not old enough for that, are you? Oh, I'm old enough, all right. It was a pretty close race for this week's Listener's Choice Review. The lunchbox lagged well behind in third place with about 15% of the boat, but the other two options, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow and Southcliff, were neck and neck all week. Actually, the last time I looked, Allison, Sky Captain had actually nudged ahead, and it was out on top by something like four votes. But when we stopped the voting last Monday at noon... Southcliff was in the lead, so Southcliff is our winner. We got remember you got to get your vote in by the Monday at noon. That's when we that's when we cut off the uh, the, the deadline there. So Southcliff, it's a 2013 miniseries from Britain's Channel Four, but it also screened at the 2013 Toronto Film Festival, and it's only four 45 minute episodes, which means it's actually only about 10 minutes longer than Boyhood. So mm-hmm. this is a television show, but it's not a super long one. You could. I guess if you're in a really sour mood, you could <laughs> you could uh, marathon this one in in one evening. Really, it just it's it would not be easy going. Be the, it's no, not easy going. No, it wouldn't be the most fun marathon, but it could be done. It could be it could be binged, but it'd be a sad binge. Uh, it's written by Tony Grissoni, who's also written several films with Terry Gilliam, and it's directed by Sean Durkin, whose feature directorial debut, Martha Marcy May Marlene, was one of our favorite movies of 2011. Certainly was one of mine. I'm, I'm yeah, speaking one of mine for you, as well. Okay, good. That's I probably should have asked before I spoke for you, but there we go. That film explored the psychological and emotional trauma suffered by a woman after she leaves a cult, and it flashed back and forth between her broken present and her past, and actually Southcliffe kind of uses a very similar structure. It opens on a gray British morning where a man is wandering through this little small town shooting people, and then it flashes back to explore the days leading up to the events. Uh, As it introduces more characters and, frankly, more possible victims in this mass shooting, it keeps flashing back and forth, showing how these people lived before the tragedy and then how it impacted their lives afterwards. Now, I thought the erratic flashback technique worked really well in Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, in that it suggested the degree to which, even after this character, played by Elizabeth Olsen, has left this cult, she, like emotionally psychologically mentally she can't escape like she it's continuing to weigh on her it's continuing to affect her and i think that's certainly the goal here to show how this horrible event that takes place continues to reverberate throughout these characters lives you have husbands who lose wives parents who lose children so my first question to allison is do you think the flashback structure works as well in southcliff as it did in martha marcy may marlene and my second question is Given uh, that it was this show was directed by a very talented young filmmaker and it was shown in Toronto, how do you think it compares to a, a, a movie? Is it a cinematic television show? Is it more of a television show than a film, more of a film than a television? How, how would you define it? Interesting. Okay, so to start with the first question. Yes, I the think, flashbacks. I think that I, I feel like it uses uh, time in two different ways because in the beginning, it's more just kind of out of time, right? Like it starts with the shooting and then jumps back a bit and fills you in on who the shooter is along with this other character and and we kind of loop around to this thing that happens. I feel like 
that is maybe less interesting than how the flashbacks are used later on after maybe after after the shootings have occurred in which you see these characters kind of the characters were grieving and the time they slip back and forth in time in a way that seems beyond their control which is the way i feel memory can work especially when you're trying to you can't let go of something Mm -hmm. right like these flashbacks are not they happen in bursts and they're not signaled very strongly necessarily as in martha marcy may marlene characters kind of go from from present day to being a kid or present day to this moment when in their romantic relationship very easily and then let go of them it's not necessarily like you get you always get this kind of anecdote from the past right sometimes it's just a burst of imagery and i do think that worked well in terms of maybe creating a sense of what it's like to grieve where these things creep back up on you so suddenly that you can't overwhelm you in terms of it being cinematic i do think it's very cinematic i i think in a way I think that the way that this is shot and this is the second I I went back and rewatched this for the second time. I'd seen this in September of last year. I I think the way it's shot is more interesting to me than the writing necessarily. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, and we can discuss this afterwards, I, I think this falls a little bit into what happens with a lot of quality television in which grimness has become an almost an obligation for, for like being good you know being taken seriously but i i think that this is shot in a way that's very that seems almost it gives a sense of like detached a detached observer like it follows it allows like the screen it it will just like stay still or only slowly slowly push in on people Mm -hmm. uh in a way that seems less like you're following a particular point of view and i think that it it creates a sense, a little bit of distance in which you're seeing this incident. It, le- it increases that feeling that you're seeing this incident from different perspectives, like looping back in time and forwards in time uh, and this looking at this town again and again and again from different, different angles. And I, I think that that worked even better for me this time mm-hmm. uh, in taking a second look. But what do you think? Do you think that this is cinematic and do you think that i don't know do you think that it it's too grim uh for to answer your second question first yes i think it's very grim and i didn't find it honestly i didn't really like it that much i didn't Mm. find it rewarding i didn't Mm. find that the grimness the darkness really said anything about this situation like it's yes it's horrible when someone commits this a, a mass murder obviously this is the worst thing imaginable uh did i felt feel like i walked away knowing anything learning anything uh not really i didn't feel like it added anything to the conversation we could have about this i guess one of the things it's trying to do is to try to in some sense like humanize the person that commits this sort of act by most of the first episode is spent on the, the the character who will go on to commit these horrible acts. And we see his home life, which is, you know, heartbreaking in some ways. And he's mistreated and, you know, has this like basically the night before the, the rampage, he, he's sort of abused in a certain way. And I honestly almost found that offensive. I almost found that so facile and, and just like so just like 
oh, here's this is why it happened. This is the explanation. And to me, it's like when you're wrestling with something this incomprehensible, I don't know that it necessarily pays to be like, here's the origin story of a mass shooting and to try to break it down into this little explainable thing. And I found I, I don't I don't want to say I found it offensive, but there were moments that I felt were verging on if not being in poor taste just just being like misguided you know i just i didn't really buy it and it is so grim and dark that it wasn't like i felt rewarded by the end of it where i felt like i'd really seen something powerful i mean sure it's devastating what happens to these characters and i think it is well shot i think it's a as dark as it is a beautiful movie at a beautiful miniseries i should say at times and the acting, I, I think, in most cases is very good as well. But I just, I didn't feel like it added up to a whole lot. Like, what, I don't know, what am I missing? What am I supposed to walk out of this having sat through three hours of just some of the most depressing, intensely miserable television I've ever watched? What am I supposed to think having walked out of it? Like, what am I taking, the missing that I should have taken away? Well, I think, like, on looking at it a second time, I think that the the kind of, the duality that emerges is the one between the journalist, right? Who's right. played by Rory Kinnear, who becomes a more prominent character towards the end, towards right. the third and fourth episodes. To be him and uh, Stephen Morton, uh, played by Sean Harris, who is the killer uh, we see right away. Right. Um, well, that's odd, though, because they don't show him right away. And I think there is... Is it supposed to be kind of a mystery? I mean, I, it don't seems think it's, so, I don't think it's supposed to be a mystery. I mean, to me, it was sort of obvious, but the fact that they didn't actually show him in the beginning, in those early scenes, you know, that very first scene, we can't yeah. actually see who's doing the attacking. He's in the distance. So we know there's someone, but we don't quite know. And I felt like they were almost trying to make it seem like that uh, other... So I don't know. I that don't know, other but, soldier could maybe mm, be the guy. Interesting. Yeah. I, and I didn't I, think that worked either. Yeah. I No, I feel like it wasn't supposed to be a mystery, but I, I felt like, and I, I will, I do agree that I feel like this structure is like pretty, it was pretty jumbled, mm-hmm. but that it sets up that one of these characters was totally, was bullied for reasons of something that happened to his father. Sure. Outcast and bullied in the community right. until they and moved it, away. That, that really the core of that small town is a dark right. and sinister place sort of thing. Or not even that, but just even the idea that like it is a small group of people and if they close ranks and exclude you, you can feel like, you know, the world is ending. Sure, right? but I mean but, but don't forget that they have the whole he basically says that the reason he was bullied is because they blamed this accident on his father right, right. and that almost like a conspiracy. Right. And then the town believed him, right? Right. So that that the company said that this is what happened. Right. Town believed that him instead of like this kid. And so the kid, you know, He's was excluded and a yeah. pariah and bullied. And as an adult, who's a, like a successful adult, he still has all of this rage against the town. Yes. But that, and he was childhood friends with the character who ends up becoming the shooter. Right. And that he, I feel like there there is this idea that he feels all of this rage towards being like, why don't basically to, towards being like, this is someone who lives among you. Why don't you close ranks on him or something like that? Do you know what I mean? To uh-huh. be like, where is the, this is a community where you supposedly know everyone. And when he comes yeah. in, he is so angry to be like, you know, what, what didn't you see the signs? Like to right. ask everyone, which is something that happens as has happened with every shooting incident, right? That has happened. Mass shootings where we right. look back and we're like, try to, why didn't you see this? Right. Like, you know, this how being like, how, and, and you know, the answer being that you never th- see someone and think they're going to do this. Right. That's, you, you know, and that, um, 
like he has that anger but just to be like maybe that that the whole idea of a small town in a community is this certain like or is is founded on this lie that you really know all of these people mm-hmm. when you don't they didn't right. know him and they br- blamed him and excluded him and that this kid who grew up among them and was certainly not was certainly an oddball in the community right. but like you know no one ever saw that but here's the thing is i i didn't really feel like i got a good sense of that community you mm-hmm. know i didn't really feel like there were forces that were closing ranks around people or were like the community is talked about the town is talked about a lot but we don't really get i didn't really feel like we got a sense of the town i mean even of the victims of this you know this horrible act they, i think they say newscasts say something like 15 people were killed and 20 people were injured in this rampage and we follow maybe three or four and i didn't really feel like we ever really got a sense of the town outside of it and this is uh, you know and this is about how this whole community is is you know, destroyed forever or changed forever as a result of this crime. And I didn't really feel like the show, I felt like it, it, it picked the wrong scale in so many ways. It's like either pick a lot of characters or pick one or two characters. Either make a 15-episode a show or, like, make a movie. Like, it just seemed like a four-hour miniseries or three-hour miniseries, four-episode miniseries about a handful of characters. It didn't give me the right scope. It gave me just enough characters to make it seem like it was the community, but didn't really give me enough diversity of characters. And it, it also was over too quick to really dive deep. Like you mentioned how uh, the, the shooter and this journalist are supposedly friends. They were supposedly friends or they knew each other. But we never really see them as children. There are flashbacks, but we never really know what their relationship was like. There are hints. I don't even really understand what they were hinting at. Like, was was Stephen Morton, the shooter, was he one of the people who bullied David? It's never really made clear. And I, that's something I think that would have been interesting to know. And I think I would have liked to have known. I agree with you that the, the journalist, the David character, is probably the most interesting character. On the other hand, I felt like the most potentially interesting character was one that is completely abandoned for, like, half of the show, which is the guy... This this returning soldier who is involved with the reasons behind the shooting, right? And basically, we a lot of the first episode is about the relationship between the Steven character and the soldier. And then the shooting happens, and something happens that's like a really, I thought, like the most shocking moment of the whole miniseries happens during the shooting between the two of them. And then we don't see the outcome of that for like two more episodes because that's the beginning of the second episode and we don't see it again in the second episode the third episode only at the in the fourth episode does that character come back and i'm like this is the most interesting guy because he played a role in this some sort of you know like and i just felt like i couldn't tell if they were trying to keep him off screen to keep it again like a mystery like what happened did what happened to this character but to me it was frustrating because i around the midpoint of the third episode i was like what happened to that guy he is in some way responsible for what happened. How is he dealing with this? Uh, see, I didn't feel like he was responsible. I mean, that was certainly a trigger, but I felt like what they did was not unjustified in that, like, this guy shot at him and, sure. you know, like, did something, like, like to the point where you kind of wish they had just said, like, we need to report you or something. Like, you did something insane. I don't disagree with you, know? but... But I feel like that's that's part... His storyline is part of that, right? It's the idea of being, like, I did something that... I, I like probably set this thing off, but that I also feel was not unjustified. But I feel this like horrendous guilt and like. And see, but see, I didn't get enough of that. I felt like all what you're describing is barely in the show. Oh, I see. I felt like that came through in the last episode. Eh, not enough for me. Yeah. Not enough. 
And then, and then things like you know the, the 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 characters that we do follow, which is like the the married the couple who lose their daughter, and then there's that whole subplot with her trying to rescue this woman. I thought that was completely unsatisfying and really i mean i i sort of understand where they were going with it that she's trying to feel like she's rescuing her daughter in absentia in a way by helping this friend of the daughter uh but i just felt like all those scenes were awkward and stilted and didn't play for me did you like that no i though i didn't love that i I mean i feel like maybe part of the right part of what's the the miniseries is about is the ways in which people grieve in really weird ways. Sure. But I mean, I feel I, I didn't think that part worked. I, I It was supposed to be weird, but I didn't think the sequence in which a character stages someone's funeral as a wedding. It was like, you know, was I think supposed to be coming across as kind of creepy, but was like very creepy. Right. Um, I do think that and we should mention, uh, Shirley Henderson is the what the one of the parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie Marzan, who I think is actually probably I, I, his performance, I think is the best one in this. And he's, he's very like, good. He is doesn't have as much screen time. No, though. but is like heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, and I, I you know in in a series that has a lot of people in like the depths of grief, like just like racked with grief, he is heartbreaking without going to some of those extreme places. Mm-hmm. Um, he's particularly good. Um, uh, yeah, I guess I can, I feel like I understand all of your complaints, but I, there wasn't more of this worked for me than right. didn't. Well, it's interesting that I hadn't really thought about it this way, but what you were saying, you would know better than me having spent, uh, you know, over a year as a the TV editor of a website, just the idea that, it, that grimness equals greatness in, in modern television. I, I mean, I haven't thought about that, but certainly that feels like it here. There's definitely an attachment to that. And I think it's something you know, we have talked about both seasons of Orange is the New Black. And I think right. that's one of the few shows in recent years that has been that has dared to be both to feel substantial and also be at least half comedy. Mm-hmm. You know, so many other. Other series, while not without moments of lightness, uh, some, like many of them, Breaking Bad certainly had moments of lightness. Right. Uh, have been just unrelentingly dark in general about their stuff, you know, like uh, the killing or um, the bridge mm. or, you know, the many shows that have murder as their main kind of narrative <laughs> right. drive. Right. Um, that, uh, or something like this, you know, which is just, a, or even the leftovers, the new HBO show, uh, which I like a lot, which is also about grieving. Supposedly right? very grim. It ver- it's dark. It's certainly dark. And uh, I-, I feel like there is a well, little bit of a sense that TV is, has stuck on this idea that, they need to be about like the darkest moments of human existence. Right. Well, it's interesting you, you're listening to you talk about this because what's, I mean, I certainly know the sort of current film landscape a little bit better. And what's the one, one of the things we always complain about is that so many of the films, particularly the mainstream ones are so bland and substantial and insubstantial and also, and just sort of like endlessly happy and upbeat, happy endings, you know, like no fluffy entertainment, fluffy entertainment. Right. And it just seems like the, the, that a lot of these TV shows are swinging the pendulum too far in the other direction. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That uh, that it's sort of noble and admirable that they're uh, taking chances and risks, but you know, it's, it's, it is, (laughs) it's okay to be entertaining, you know, like, and I think that a, a show like this, maybe not entertaining, but could have been a little bit more engaging, I think. And and just not such a slog. I don't know. It, or if you're going to be a slog, I don't know. It just you can't make the missteps that this show to me made, which was to add in these some of these subplots 
and to not flesh out other things. I guess just the sort of the focus that they chose a lot of times just to me felt wrong. And it's from a guy, you know, Sean Durkin, who I thought I really loved Martha Marcy May Marlene. And I think visually and stylistically this looks great, but it just didn't, it, to me, it just does not pack the same emotional wallop. I think it's, it's, it's trying to aim for this, you know, big grand thing. And there's some things, you know, I, I did like the, 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 you mentioned the journalist character. I liked him. And I thought the, the final episode was interesting at times. And this idea of, of this lingering, potentially another conspiracy, another mystery, I thought if they had ended it a different way, I might've hated it. But the way that they dealt with it, I thought was very effective actually. But that was sort of one small thread amidst a lot of stuff that I, I did not find very satisfying. And honestly, if, if I might not have even watched the second episode, if we weren't, if we weren't this. talking about, it. because yeah. the other thing is we haven't really talked about is that it's not very cliffhangery. It's not very TV in the sense that you watch one and you're like, I want to find out what happens next. I honestly, after the first episode, uh, I thought I thought the second episode was better than the first episode, but the first episode is so brutal that I honestly may not have watched the the second if I was just watching for pleasure or just for my own curiosity. Yeah, you know, I mentioned this before, and I think it's something that is is very interesting to me about about this and about a few other recent shows, which is that we do often we look at television as a writer's medium, and that's how it's described, and that's often how it is. You know, like television shot pretty quickly. Uh, we very uh, very rarely do people have time to do the kind of things visually that they're able to do on film, and they're guided by TV shows are guided by a creator who usually comes from a writing background. Mm-hmm. So you know, and who is the main the main voice, a writer producer. But I, I think with a few recent shows, they have really felt to me more interesting from a filmmaking perspective, and I think that's just because we're seeing not only more filmmakers going into TV, which has been happening for the past few years, but also we're seeing shorter, uh, shorter seasons and kind of places where they have more time to do, to, to put thought into and kind of experiment with the look of a TV show. And I think that Southcliff is, is one of those shows where it has a very distinctive look and feel that, you know, regardless of what you think of the content, it, it definitely, it looks distinctive on television and i would also say that's true for the nick which is the new series that was uh, the new steven soderbergh series which is currently running on cinemax uh, starring clive owen it i feel like the writing on it is pretty typical it's like pretty tv typical uh, and, and a lot of the way the characters are written are, are pretty typical and you can almost imagine it being shot by someone else and being this much more standard period drama. But it's shot by Steven Soderbergh in this way that's very contemporary and very loose and really changes your the way you look at these characters. Uh, and so I, it's very interesting to me to see shows like this that are bringing a very cinematic sensibility to television. And I think, you know, that can only be a good thing for for television to have more visual style. Sure, absolutely. All right, well, that is Southcliff, the miniseries, and you can watch the whole thing now on Netflix. Okay, before we get to our Behind the Eight Ball segment, we want to do this new thing we started on our last episode. We haven't named it yet. We need a name for this segment. More from Wilmore, something. I don't know. But I don't, I know it's not always going to be all me, though. No, it's, I don't want to do any work. It's going to be mostly you. Oh, so yeah, Thank you. 
well, you're the one who's seeing a lot of the new movies, so we wanted you know your quick updates on on uh, on some new titles. And this week, for you, it's The Giver. That's the movie you saw this week. What do you? Is it, it is. Is it worth seeing? No. I, I love the book. Well, I'm gonna love the movie. I actually I read the book specifically so I could write about the differences between. Okay. It. I think the the one thing that's interesting about it is that. It takes a book, which is like a, it was a 1993 Newbery medal winner. It's being, it's taught in some middle schools, right? It's, um, and tries to add all of these contemporary young, young adult, adult touch, touches, touches, like the it romance. Makes, yes. Romance. It boosts the main character from age 12, which he is in the book to so, age 16. So he can played be by a, and played by a 25 year old Australian actor. It is not. It totally 25? Is. Totally. Yeah. What? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh you know, God. adds a romance, adds like the hint of a love triangle. 25? Adds like a chase scene towards the end. Adds a bad guy played by Meryl Streep. And None of these things were in the book. Not really, no. And, it, or or like certainly not in the form. Like maybe if oh there's like God, the bare... 25. There are wow. bare seeds of them. And then the movie just like boosts these up. And it just, it makes it look like just another generic teen dystopia movie which is now its own subgenre very profitable subgenre in some cases um yeah i i think that there's a reason that, that uh the movie got pushed to august and or is coming out in august and it is not because I, people thought it would shine in, in in a slot in august wow that is amazing i'm i'm, I'm speechless by the uh the fact that the guy is 25, <laughs> 25. playing 16 and the character was originally 12 yes. that's great yeah, you, neither you, of us saw uh let's, let's be cops, cops which is let's not be cops let's not be cops uh, i which, did see the expendables 3 uh which is uh, you know nothing nothing special i mean the thing that continues to stagger me about the expendables franchise as a whole after three movies is that these are action movies like no one expect i don't i don't go to the expendables 3 looking for shakespeare i don't know how to i don't need a lot all i need is just competent action and that is something that inexplicably this series has yet to deliver i mean this is the third one they're really inept action they're movies. incredibly unsatisfying action people, movies they just have forgotten how to make action movies well i think i i, I, I mean realistically we, a lot of these guys are really old I mean, Sylvester Stallone is almost 70, and I think, you know, that it's just hard to make him look like a... He looks know. he looks melty. Yeah, I think it's just hard to make him look... Uh, spry. Spry, exactly. Thank you. And the other thing that really hurts this one is it's PG-13 instead of R. And I, it's not like I'm like, I want to see a lot of blood. The problem is that it's it, the movie is has the enough violence for an R. Like, literally hundreds of people are killed in this movie. But they cut away constantly because, you know, if there's no blood, it's not R. So it's a bloodless, incredibly violent movie. And the way you do that is by cutting already hacky action scenes to ribbons. So there's actually a lot of fun stuff with the characters, you know, like... Is it true that Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jet Li are get together? I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything. But but uh, the uh, it's quite delightful. But the the... The action is terrible. So you have an action movie with kind of fun characters and terrible action. So that's that's pretty much it. That's all you need to know. So uh, yeah, we still need a name for that this segment. Yeah, the and hopefully movie. it'll it'll be maybe a little more substantial in coming months. Right. Once well, we when get there's out of a movie August. worth talking about, it's yes. late August, people. What do you want from <laughs> our lives? But yeah, if you have some ideas for the names of that segment or other stuff you'd want to hear on the uh, podcast. SVU at filmspottingsvu.com is the uh, email address. All right, let's get to uh, behind the eight ball where we each run down three new titles, two listener recommendations, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists. 
Allison, you want to go first? Yes. All right. Why don't you go first? And why don't you start with your three new titles? All right. First up, new to Amazon Prime and Netflix is your next. The uh, slasher hit directed by Adam Weingart and written by Simon Barrett. Starring Sharni Vincent, A.J. Bowen, and a host of other actors and filmmakers like Ty West, Joe Swanberg, and Amy Simetz, and Larry Fessenden <laughs> in a very distinctive role. I really, really like this movie. I think it's such a great combination of really well-staged horror slash action and also a sense of humor, which you really need in a movie like this. And it, it's got some interesting elements of class and also a great twist on the idea of the final girl. It's a, it's a really fun horror movie. Yeah, it's so much fun. Um, so if it's one that you've only heard about or that you want to revisit, it is now on Netflix and Amazon Prime. New to Hulu is Nancy Please. This is the directorial debut of Andrew Siemens. Got uh, some praise on the festival circuit. Uh, it's about a man named Paul, played by Will Rogers, who's been getting his PhD at Yale. He's working on delivering his dissertation. He's just moved in with his, with his girlfriend. And the future looks bright, except he realizes he left an annotated, annotated copy of Little Dorrit, the book, uh, at his old apartment in the possession of his dreaded, very unpleasant former roommate named Nancy, played by Eleanor Hendricks. And this movie has been described as an academic psychothriller, basically. But in a lot of ways, it's about... Uh, how all of this dread of your future and of doing things like, you know, finally finishing your dissertation and all of that can really break you down and make you focus on something as small as this book that your mean old roommate has been holding hostage. It's a nice little, it's not really, it's sort of a thriller. It's more of a psychological drama. Yeah. I mean, I really related to the idea of like, it's sort of also about writer's block. It's about him not being able to write uh, procrastination and and laziness and not wanting to write something or not feeling inspired to write something and focusing on something else. Yes. And how the little problems that you can let overwhelm your life. uh, That was something I thank God I can't relate to the, you know, roommate taking something and then freaking out at them kind of thing. But the, that impetus for it, I could definitely relate to. And I, I like that movie a lot. I think it's one people should check out. Yeah. And finally, a movie I will admit I have not watched yet, but I wanted to mention because it's it just had its its festival premiere and is now free on Vimeo. It is Lyle, which you can find at lylemovie.com. L-Y-L-E-M-O-V-I-E.com. Uh, directed by Stuart Thorndike and starring Gabby Hoffman, who's been really on a great run lately with... Uh, crazy guest spots on girls she's been on louie she's been uh turning out some really funny and just like very wild roles in films as well um it's a horror movie that's just been described as a lesbian take on rosemary's baby and it's as i mentioned just had its uh world premiere at new fest in late july and the director has released it online for free because she's crowdfunding for her next movie and so while it's up there, she has put this online for free. And, you know, it's always nice for a, f- a movie that uh, has only just, you know, had its world premiere to be available to a wider audience so quickly. So I feel like that's worth supporting. So check it out and, you know, see if you want to help out this filmmaker in terms of making another movie. That is Lyle. It is available on Vimeo. All right. Two listener recommendations. First up, we have a recommendation from Joe G from Chicago. He writes, I would like to recommend the documentary Ray Harryhausen, Special Effects Titan. For anyone who has grown up post-Star Wars and is used to seeing lists of special effects artists that are almost as long as the movies themselves, 
This documentary deals with a man who created movie magic mostly on his own. Mighty Joe Young and his fantasy films like Jason and the Argonauts are acknowledged classics. Who can forget Jason's battle with his group of skeletons? His The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, from a story by his lifelong friend Ray Bradbury, is considered by many to be the inspiration for Godzilla. Many of his movies are available for rent on Amazon. And you can find Ray Harryhausen, special effects titan, on Netflix. And second recommendation is from Matt from Madison, Wisconsin, who sent us a, a several um, anime recommendations. We picked one of them. Uh, Ping Pong the Animation, which can be found on Hulu, centers on two childhood friends making their way up the ranks in extremely competitive high school tennis table tennis tournaments. It is a modest-sounding premise for a show that, that's visually arresting and thematically compelling. A big part of what I enjoyed about the series is how every character, down to rather minor figures, all have an arc that relates to their motives for competing. There aren't any villains. There are only kids striving for their own reasons. The show has a big heart and is act- accented with some terrific music. Directed with heady, often transcendent style by Masaki Yuasa, whose similarly brilliant series The Tatami Galaxy is also ready to watch on Hulu. Ping Pong is as good as it gets. So that is Ping Pong, the animation, which is on Hulu. Okay, and one film chosen from your... My list! You gave me number 19, which is a film that I think we had up as a listener's choice option once. Is the Man Who Is Tall Happy? This is a documentary with animation from Michelle Gondry, who of course directed Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and many others. And this film is made up of a series of interviews featuring linguist, philosopher, and activist Noam Chomsky, all done in animation. So I've not seen it yet, but it is on my my list. But is the man who is tall happy? Can you at least answer that question for me? What what does happiness mean, Matt? I ask you. To me, it's tallness as a short person. Well, there you tallness go. Tallness does equal happiness. Well, as a tall person, I'll say. All it leads to <laughs> is people asking you to get things down off of shelves from them. Speaking of which, all right, well, I'll ask you to grab it for me afterwards. All right, sorry. <laughs> all right, Matt, are you ready? I am. All right, well, three new picks. All right, first up, a recent addition to the Criterion Collection that's now streaming on Criterion's website at uh, Hulu, hulu.com slash Criterion, I think is the site. A Hard Day's Night, directed by Richard Lester and starring the Beatles, playing themselves, uh, recreating a couple of days in their lives, running away from fans, performing on British television, and goofing off with journalists. An incredible soundtrack includes Can't Buy Me Love, If I Fell. If you'd like to hear any of these songs, Allison, just say the word. I should have known better. And, of course, the great title track that plays over the opening credits where they're running away from the fans, A Hard Day's Night. It's really just an incredible rock movie. It's funny. It's just pure joy. It's pure really. joy. <laughs> great music. Uh, has some has some really wonderful sequences. And, and it's, you know, it's joyful. But I think there's some interesting things. We just We just looked back at the movie at The Dissolve a couple of months ago. And... It is just a really fun movie, for sure. But there's something interesting about it, too, from the angle of the sort of emergence of teen culture. Because the girls, the screaming girls, are such a huge part of that movie. And the way that the Beatles are received. And how the teenagers love them. But they're at this point in their careers where the adults sometimes don't recognize them. Which is sort of an interesting thing, to be that famous, but also that unknown in some places. Well, and also representatives of teen culture. When they go to do the interviews with the journalists, it's all about being basically quizzed about kids these days right exactly and i think there's i think there's something interesting there too so it is very joyful but there's there's some cool subtext going on as well so that's a hard day's night on hulu okay next up a film you could pair with bernie that i mentioned earlier for a little reconnaissance double feature 
This is Mud, now streaming on Amazon Prime. McConaughey stars as a fugitive who's hiding on an island in the Mississippi Delta, and after he's discovered by a couple of teenagers, including Ty Sheridan from The Tree of Life and Joe, the trio strike up a friendship, and the uh, this, this sort of strange, mysterious loner character who's still pining for his lost love, played by Reese Witherspoon, becomes a, uh, a father figure to the boys. Uh, Mud is the latest film from Jeff Nichols, who makes... Really excellent southern set indie films like Shotgun Stories and Take Shelter, which was my number one movie of 2011. I was a big fan as well. A great, great film. I don't think Mud is quite in the same league, but a very good movie with a very good McConaughey performance. So that's Mud, streaming on Amazon Prime. And finally, I've got something streaming on Crackle, one of the ultimate 80s buddy comedies, Midnight Run, starring Robert De Niro as bounty hunter Jack Walsh and James Groden, uh, excuse me, Charles Groden as... His, uh, his bounty, Jonathan the Duke Mardukas. Uh, Jack has five days to get the Duke from New York to Los Angeles. And uh, I just rewatched this movie recently as well. Uh, that was to have a conversation about it with uh, Adam Scott from Parks and Recreation and many fine films. Uh, we have this feature on the Dissolve called Compulsory View where someone picks a film everyone should see. And his pick was... Uh, Midnight Run. So I got to talk to him uh, about it. And it was it's a really great film. Another one that's kind of... Just pure joy. It's just a super entertaining movie. Uh, and I really liked how uh, Adam Scott put it when I talked to him. He said that he likes it because it basically has everything he wants to see in a movie. This was the quote. It's really, really funny. Its action scenes are perfect. It's genuinely suspenseful. It's scary at times. It's very sad at times. It's such a whole meal. I, I like that phrase. It's a whole meal of a movie. And I certainly agree. So that's Midnight Run streaming on Crackle. All right, two listener recommendations. Okay, our first recommendation here is from Andy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He says, I recently watched the first three Paradise Lost documentaries on Amazon Prime for the first time. The case of the West Memphis Free, who were accused of murdering three small children in Arkansas in 1993, plays out over more than seven hours following the everyday lives of Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, and the various people in their orbit. It's an unforgettable story with unforgettable subjects as well as a fascinating case of art influencing life, influencing art. The documentaries brought international attention to their case and in many ways kept them alive and perhaps eventually freed them due to the massive support behind their cause. And I didn't realize these films were actually on Amazon Prime, that you could watch all three of them. But uh, they're fascinating documentaries. I really love all three of those films. And, and I bet they're really interesting to watch back to back to back. It's yeah. a, uh, another heavy, that would be a heavy view, although... Uh, you know, not ends to spoil a, anything. A, somewhat not of a, a not a completely def- devastating note, <laughs> right? It ends on a slightly uplifting note. So yeah, exactly. But uh, absolutely, check those out. Good recommendation from Andy in Philadelphia. The three Paradise Lost documentaries. Uh, the two sequels have subtitles, but uh, you'll find them if you just type in Paradise Lost. They're all available on Amazon Prime. And I have a second recommendation here. This one's from Patrick F. He says, with the critical and audience success of Martha Stevens and Aaron Katz's Land Ho. I thought I would recommend one of the one of these duos lesser seen solo efforts. Martha Stevens' Pilgrim Song is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Like Cats, Stevens is a North Carolina School for the Arts grad who has been making stellar work for the last 5 years. However, for whatever reason, her work hasn't been able to cross over in the same way as Aaron Katz's. Pilgrim Song is a great travelogue story of an unemployed music teacher who decides to walk Kentucky's Shelter We Trace Trail. I hope I said that right. Like her first feature, uh, Pilgrim Song provides an honest and compelling bird's eye survey of rural Appalachia. It has improvised scenes, an impenetrable protagonist, 
and an elliptical plot. They all provide a level of authenticity missing in most portrayals of coal country. While the claustrophobic nature of shooting on a hiking trail limits the visual scale, the result is a fully immersive film experience. And I have to admit, I haven't seen, I haven't even seen Lan Ho yet. No, I and I do either. like Aaron Katz's work, uh, and I certainly haven't seen Pilgrim Song either, but um, I guess I don't have a My List on Amazon Prime, but I'm going to have to write that one down to keep a, remember to take a look at that when I have a few hours, because that sounds really interesting. So that's Pilgrim Song, streaming on Amazon. All right, and one from your My List. You gave me number 42, and this time that is Basquiat, the biopic about the great artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. Directed by Julian Schnabel, who I love as a director, and I've actually never seen. I think that's his first feature, and I don't know why I've just never gotten around to seeing it. I haven't. Have you seen it? Allison? I haven't seen it either. Yeah, I need to. I didn't need to. Maybe I need to bump that up higher on the list and 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 try to uh, make some time for that one as well. There's so many movies to watch. It's, it's, oh, it's so hard having all these wonderful movies access to them. What a pain. Life is tough. Oh, it's so hard. All right, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. I. This is an intriguing batch. I have no idea what's going to yeah, win this Yeah, I can't time. guess either. There was one choice I think we threw away specifically because we knew it was going to win, and we wanted to make it a little more interesting here. So, Allison, you've got the first one. What is it? All right. Uh, our first one is a documentary, and we don't always, we don't have that many documentaries up. Uh, don't do so. a ton of docs. Yeah, but this one is a, about a really interesting topic. It's Dinosaur 13, which is available for rent on iTunes and Amazon, directed by Todd Douglas Miller, had its premiere at Sundance, and uh, also just recently hit theaters. It is a documentary about the finding of the most complete T-Rex skeleton in 1990, and the subsequent like 10-year battle between you know the guy people who found it, the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs because of uh, where it was found, the FBI, the Park Service, and the guy whose property it was on. And becomes this really, you know, obviously a, a complete T-Rex is a very valuable find mm. for many reasons. Like mm. it's actually valuable monetarily, but also valuable for cultural reasons. And the idea of like who gets to own this like ancient, this this kind of artifact of ancient, 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 you know, history of, of, of prehistoric history uh, is an interesting one. And I think that is not one that gets brought up very often on screen. And so... Uh, that's certainly one I would love to see. Dinosaur 13, available for rent. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it too. It's, it sounds really, really interesting. So that's option one. Option two is a streaming on Amazon Prime, and it is called The Visitor. This is a 1979 film directed by a gentleman by the name of Michael Paradise. And uh, this was recently sort of... I don't want to say rediscovered, but re-released anyway by the people at Draft House Films and... Just the description of this movie, it's supposedly this insane cult film. Just the description of it. Maybe I'm a, a crazy person, but it makes my mouth literally water, Allison, just hearing what this movie's about. And I will read, this is from the Draft House Films website. This is the plot description. In this unforgettable assault on reality, restored and presented uncut for the first time ever in the U.S., legendary Hollywood director, actor John Huston, stars <laughs> as an intergalactic warrior who joins a cosmic Christ figure in a battle against a demonic eight-year-old girl and her pet hawk, while the fate of the universe hangs in the balance. Multidimensional warfare, pre-adolescent profanity, and brutal avian attacks combine to transport the viewer to a state unlike any they've experienced, somewhere between hell, the darkest reaches of outer space, and Atlanta, Georgia. So, 
I mean, that sounds amazing. And uh, I really wanted to see this movie when the Draft House folks released it. I just didn't have a chance. Uh, I didn't get to cover it, and I am dying to see this movie. So this would be a wonderful excuse. That's The Visitor, streaming now on Amazon Prime. And our third option is another Draft House Films re-release. They've been doing some nice restoring of or just resurfacing of some older films as part of their kind of theatrical plan. It is Ms. 45, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. This is Abel Ferrara's 1981 revenge film starring Zoe Tamerlis Lund as a mute seamstress who goes on a killing spree after being raped, was critically reviled at the time, has since become an exploitation classic, uh, and you know, as mentioned, last year was remastered and re-released by Drafthouse Films. Um, did you know what uh, Abel Ferrara's first film was? Uh, I, I'm blanking on it now. Well, but I think uh, it's it's a porn film. <laughs> Do you know that? I did not. I, know I it. was I was I doing I a long uh, like a list of directorial debuts, and I think the Driller Killer is like his. Oh first. right, that's what I was. Yeah, thinking of. but he actually made like a a porn before film. this. Yes, a full hardcore. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So you know, no one. <laughs> the original Go Go Tales. Yes. No one does underground. Like Abel Ferrara. Yeah. Um, but that is uh, currently streaming on Amazon Prime. All right. So which movie should we review on the next episode of FilmSpotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, August 25th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be available on or around Tuesday, September 2nd. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the episodes. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice poll and where we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners. For FilmSpottingSVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.